Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So this quarter, we're reading an Encounters with Jesus where Jesus asked people questions. Uh, and we're kind of considering the questions that he asked, uh, only because it's a different approach maybe than what we've maybe all of us kind of normally have with the Bible, with Christianity, with religion. Uh, we usually come with questions, and that's valid, and that's good, and encouraged and everything. Um, but this quarter, we're kind of asking, well, what does Jesus ask of us? What are the kind of questions uh, he hits us with? And so tonight we're going to look at a passage from John 5, um, where Jesus is going to ask a man, do you want to be healed? And, uh, and we're going to consider kind of the role of Jesus' miracles. What do they do? And, uh, and what is he teaching us and what is he asking us? So read with me now uh, a couple of verses and we'll talk about it. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and then Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these days, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of your heart that we have. You ask a question. Uh, that is a hard question to entertain. It's a hard question to be honest that we don't even want to admit we need to be asked um, because hope is a scary thing. Uh, The promise of healing and the promise of wellness is a scary thing. As we consider it, Holy Spirit, we need you to be with us. We actually need you to teach us. Uh, So be with us now in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, So I went to the doctor yesterday, incidentally. Not to, for the purpose of illustration, I actually needed to go to the doctor. And I am already not doing what the doctor said. Um, I tore, I, uh, yeah, not even on purpose. Again, not for the sake of illustration. I just got here and just changed my introduction now because this is perfect. Um, in July, I partially tore a ligament in this hand. And I went to the doctor then. And he said, you need to immobilize it. He gave me a brace. He said, you need to ice it. Uh, for six weeks, don't do anything, don't lift anything more than a magazine. Um, 
I walked out of the doctor's office and took the brace off and put it on the passenger seat of my car and never put it on again. It actually is now one of the toys that my children fight over the most. Um, so, turns out, uh, if you don't listen to the doctor, more often than not, they're actually right. Uh, so, I've been doing... By the way, recognize this is a miracle. We're four weeks in. I'm mentioning CrossFit for the first time, I think. Um, been lifting weights, doing CrossFit, doing everything I'm not supposed to be doing. And guess what? My hand has not healed. And I went to the doctor again yesterday expecting something different. And uh, he was like, so I told you to immobilize it, to ice it, and to not lift anything more than a magazine. And you didn't do any of that. So now what I'm going to do is put a cast on your hand. And then we proceeded to kind of have this argument, and I was like, as you can see, I won. (laughs) But the doctor, he said, here's the problem, and here's what you need to do. And I said, and in my own mind, but also I was more vocal um, than I thought I would have been. I'm with my wrist all the time. I know exactly how it feels. I know what it needs. I know what I want from it, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to put my my brace on tomorrow. I legitimately forgot it today. I'm trying to wear it now. Um, For those of you who think, like, wow, he's, yeah. (laughs) Here's my point. We're coming to Jesus all the time saying, here's the problem and here's what I need you to do for me. Here's the solution I want from you. Uh, And he's coming to us in this passage, but all throughout the Gospels, because all of his miracles actually work together to give us a picture of what he's doing. And he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand the problem. Here's the problem. And what you need is not me to get stuff for you or to get the life circumstances for you. What you need is me. And a lot of our spiritual life is very confusing because all we're doing is WebMDing Jesus. We're like, I know my body. I know what I want. I know how it feels. I know what I need. I'm going to consult a medical professional. I'm going to consult a healer and then tell them what I want from them. And the reality is, I'm I'm going to put my brace on as soon as I get home tonight. Even though I'm with me all the time. Even though I know how I feel all the time. Even though I use this wrist all the time. The healer is the one that can help me. And that's really what's going on in this passage. Uh, And what I want to do as we consider is, I want to look at the false cures, the way the man first addresses Jesus, the question Jesus has for him, and the hope Jesus brings. So first, the false cures, right? We're all trying to fix ourselves, or we're telling Jesus how we want him. To fix us. So you meet this guy at a pool in Bethesda called Bethesda in Jerusalem. And we're told that a bunch of blind people and a bunch of lame people and a bunch of paralyzed people gather there. And the reason why is because this is a place rumored to have mystical powers for healing. Um, these kind of places actually still exist today. Places all around the globe. I kind of played around on the internet this afternoon. Uh, there are places all around the globe that have mystical powers. Uh, reportedly, and people, when they're in dire circumstances, terminally or chronically ill, will travel to these places and see if they can be healed. Um, If you've ever had someone in your family or close to you who's terminally or chronically ill, um, 
especially if they're terminally ill. And I've had a family member be in that situation, and you kind of can't blame them, right? And you could see the appeal if you were in their situation. Um, well, this is one of those places, right? This is a place of kind of alternative medicine. There's a myth about this pool. There are actually older, uh, there are additional manuscripts of John that we have that include an additional verse between verses um, uh, in, within verse 4 that actually explain the pool a little bit. And what they say is this, is that uh, at this pool the water would stir periodically and the people believed that it was angels stirring the water. And if you were the first person into the water after it stirred, uh, you could be healed. Uh, and what scholars say is most likely is that the pool was fed by an underground aquifer and it would periodically bubble up and that's the way people translate it. But this is really my point about this, and this is, the, this is what the text is teaching us and showing us in this man, is that he was clinging to and he was hoping in a myth to heal him. He had his own idea about the cure that he needed. A false cure, maybe it was a placebo, maybe even palliative care. But of course, the irony of places like this, and I've been actually to one of these healing type places before, not because I was ill, but out of curiosity. And the irony about these places is in the world today where these places exist, where there's this mythological healing power, it's just like this pool today. Everyone misses the irony that everybody there is sick and lame and paralyzed and blind. Right? If there's mystical power, people aren't walking away healthy. And I've been to the place, I wanted to see somebody healed, so I've been to one of these places. You know, it's interesting, no one gets healed, but all the lame people are there. So here's the question for us. Where the place, where's the place that we're gathering, hoping that we will be healed, hoping that we will be made whole, hoping that we can get everything right in us and in the world around us? Because we are all seeking a cure. The fundamental kind of human task is to rectify the situation. But everybody is answering three questions, Christian or not. Uh, and, and I would dare say, I think you can interpret any decision you make as an implicit answer to these three questions. What am I here for? What went wrong? And how do I fix it? That is the human endeavor. It's always addressing those three questions. What am I here for? What does it mean to be human? How do I fill out that purpose? Why is that purpose frustrated? And how, do it, how does it get fixed? Another way of saying it is, where's your pool? Where's the place you go to where you enact a technique, right? They have a technique. You have to wait for the water bubble, be the first person in. And if you enact that technique in the proper manner, it makes everything right in your life, in you and outside of you, right? Your circumstances, but also inside of you. Where is it? We all have a cocktail of remedies, that we're putting together that we think, all right, I'm mixing and matching all of these remedies and hopefully I'll eventually get that cocktail tweaked just right and all will be well. And life is just tweaking, right? It's just tweaking that cocktail. So what is it? I mean, here's the easy one. We won't belabor this because we talk about it every week. Success here at Stanford, right? Tweaking the dials, hoping the next goal, the next achievement will make you feel Okay. Uh, maybe your pool is actually not the work during the week. Maybe it's the weekend. <coughs> maybe you're like, I got to do what I got to do because I know that I feel the burden of that responsibility. I'm going to do it. Where I, where the pain stops, 
is when I medicate myself into a stupor on the weekend. Right? Handle my responsibility during the week because I got to. But it's there, it's on the weekends, it's with the chemical enhancement that I can make the anxiety stop. I was talking to our conference speaker this past weekend, Sammy Rhodes, and he was telling me that for one of his students, they talked about with her, she, she dropped out of school, she went to a third world country to work for a nonprofit, and that was her cure. That's where she thought she could be healed. She actually ran away from herself and ran away from her problems and did good things, thinking, if I do enough good things for Jesus, it'll heal me. I will feel okay with who I am. And even when doing good things, what she was doing all along was running away from who she is and running away from Jesus. She wasn't dealing with herself. Is your pool impact? Is your pool good things? Is your pool religion? Is your pool a new exciting relationship once I have someone? Is it control? Right? My way of thinking, the world coming around to my way of organizing things, would that heal you? Would that heal your world? What is the place, maybe as a Christian, where you're going, hey Jesus, here's what I need from you right now. That's what this guy is saying. Jesus comes along, And saw him, and he says, do you want to be healed? And the man's response is, hey Jesus, that sounds great, here's what I need from you. He tells Jesus his plan, right? And we're still lying by the pool, and we're thinking it's going to work this time. We'll be the first person down, we'll finally get our technique right. Just a few more tweaks. So here's my question for you. Because here's the troubling thing is, we're all far more superstitious than we want to believe. We read this story and we're like, that's crazy. I would never do something like that. Um, But we're all acting on superstition this week. And superstition is when you believe something can heal you that in fact doesn't have the power to heal you. That's what superstition is. We're all practicing homeopathy all the time. This is what I mean. Here's how you know you're practicing it. When... The thing, when, when something in your life that has become important to you is a constant source of anxiety and security instead of a constant source of delight. You know what Stanford was supposed to be? A delight. You know what Stanford is great at being? A playground for discovering God's world. It's awesome at that. And it can be delightful. You know what Stanford is terrible at doing? Healing you. And what... People will slowly admit over time here is they're addicted to Stanford and hate it. Right? I love it. I have to serve it because I think there's hope in it, but I hate this place because it doesn't heal me. This place is a great playground. Pools are a great place to play. They're terrible places for healing. Stanford is a great place to play. The classrooms, the labs here, great place to play. You know what's a terrible place for healing? This place. It's not what it's built to do. It's built to actually be your playground, but you're asking it to heal you. Right? So if it's, if it's something that's bringing anxiety and insecurity instead of delight, or if it's something, if you are threatened and jealous of other people instead of having the ability to celebrate good things in their life. Right? When it's something that you can't rest from, and you have to stay right there by the pool for 38 years, hoping this time you'll finally get it right. You can't take a break. Right? If it's something that causes you to denigrate 
other people, to deny them dignity. Right? To use other people. To say what they're, the way, the manner in which they're, the reason they're in this life is for, in my life is for me to use them. Whatever that looks like. Networking, hookups, it looks like a ton of different things. When it destroys and divides people in relationships instead of restores them. There are, the sources of division, the sources of anxiety and security, the sources of jealousy and competitiveness, the sources of the lack of rest in our life, those are the pools we are drinking from. And my guess is, in a lot of our prayer life, if you're a person who prays, and if you pray to Jesus, a lot of the time, we are asking Him to take us to the pool. And Jesus comes along and singles out this man, and He says, Do you want to be healed? This guy has been paralyzed for 38 years, nearly four decades. Let's put that in context. That means he's been paralyzed, if it was today, since 1978. We all have seasons of struggle and disappointment. His has lasted four decades. It is not a mild disappointment or a mild struggle. He is paralyzed. That's socially isolating. That's humiliating. That makes you completely dependent on others. Completely physically dependent on others. We all have struggles. We have, we, have, we have things we have to bear in this life. And they've lasted some seasons longer than others. This guy's been on the ground for 38 years. And when you think about that, with the first time you read the text, at that point, Jesus' question almost sounds like mockery, doesn't it? Hey, would you like to be healed? But I think the reason he asked that question is because not all of us want to be healed. Because sometimes we actually find our identity in our brokenness, and at the end of the day, we can't let go of it. We're actually addicted to our own brokenness. Sometimes the sickness can actually so infect us that we can no longer separate ourselves from it. And that condition, that thing, that lifestyle, that fear, that sin sickness, we've grown so accustomed to it that even though we might hate it, we don't know how to be who we could be apart from it. This is the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood. Let's just say it's grumbling. Always complaining. Blaming others. For a while you're distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself, wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer because there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it. Just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there's something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I think we need to wrestle with the fact that we love a lot of our sickness. We love anger. Do you really want to let go of your anger? Because it feels good. Special social media and politics right now, doesn't it feel good to rage? Do you really want to let go? Do you really want to be healed from that? I'm afraid we don't know who we would be if we weren't angry. Right? Do you know? Do you, judgment. Judgmentalism. Do you know that you don't have to sit in judgment of yourself and everyone else? That kind of sounds like freedom, but isn't that kind of scary too? Isn't judgment fun? Let's talk about pornography or whatever your addiction of choice is. Do you know that you don't have to leave, live in secrecy to your addiction? Do you want to be free? Do you really want to be healed? 
Uh, another thing Sammy said this weekend, if you were there, he said, we all have a superpower. We can make anything about us. Do you want to be healed of that? Isn't narcissism really, really fun? Can you even imagine not being a narcissist, not seeing every situation only in reference to you? It's hard to imagine even that. But that's actually what healing might look like. A lot of times what I think we do is we come to Jesus and He says, do you want to be healed? And what we hear is, hey, can I make life a little bit easier for you? And we're like, absolutely, let's do that, Jesus. And what we really want is we want Jesus to alleviate the pain or the experience of our suffering, but not the source of our suffering. I love this, hate this, can you just deal with this? Right? Deal with the experience of how it feels, but don't deal with where it actually came from. I want skin treatment for the lesions on my skin, but let's not talk about the tumor. Let's not talk about where it came from. Right? Jesus, I want you to smooth out my boyfriend or girlfriend situation. Can you? The drama is unnerving. We love each other. We hate each other. Can you just, like, make it smooth? Right? Just take me to the pool, Jesus. But don't do this. Don't change me. Don't make me into a different kind of person. That's what healing is. Jesus, I don't want to feel the guilt and dissonance of hypocrisy anymore. I say one thing, I act a different way. Can you make that feeling go away? I don't want to change. I don't want to have to change. That's hard. That sounds really scary. Can you just make the feeling go away? Jesus, I don't want to be anxious about school anymore. Can you make that feeling go away? But I still want to worship school and place all my hope and identity in grades. Can we, well, how's that arrangement work? Jesus, can we get that arrangement down? But I want you to make the feeling of competition and spite and anxiety. Can you make that go away? But don't, but don't actually heal me. Don't heal the addiction I have in my heart to that. I don't want that because this is still my hope. Jesus, I want friends, but not the weird Christian ones. <laughs> right? Some cool ones would be nice. Don't change me into the kind of person that can enjoy those people. Right? Here's the thing. Jesus, I want friends, but... Don't make me have to do the work of actually spending a lot of time with them, downtime. You know that's how friends are made, is doing nothing together for a long time. <laughs> it seems obvious, but we struggle with it, right? We don't want Jesus to change us. We just want, we just want Him to alleviate the pain but not deal with the source. So we're not sure that we always want what Jesus is offering. I'm not sure I always want what Jesus is offering. We don't want to deal with Him. We don't want to have to like look at Him and deal with Him. We just want to use Him as a totem or a talisman to get the circumstances of our life lined up. Take us to the pool. And Jesus refuses to take the guy to the pool. Jesus says, no, no, no. You're dealing with me and my words here and now. This is about me and you. Pools are not involved. Do we really want to be healed? What happens is we want Him to work from the outside in. And his, what His plan is, is to work from the inside out.
We want him to work on the circumstances. And we're like, if you get the circumstances of my life right, then I'm like, I'll be fine right here eventually. It's not how he works. He works from the inside out. Because this is the thing, the sin sickness, the origin of what is broken is not out in the world. There is brokenness out in the world in the circumstances of our life on a macro social level and on a personal in your daily relationships level. But the origin of the sin sickness that broke all of that is in our hearts. The brokenness around us is real. But its origin is the self-love, the self-trust, the self-protecting, the self-obsessed, God-suspicious heart that sits in the middle of us. And until something happens right there, all we are doing is palliative care. Palliative care is treating the symptoms but not the issue. And it may just be that actually out of love, Jesus won't do palliative care for you. Because what he is involved in, the way he begins to heal you from the inside out is mercy. Not magic. We want him to magically fix our roommate. He intends to magic, he actually, not magically, he intends to change you through mercy. And this is why the, the, the religious people, these guys, Y'all would all say, we want him to be our RAF campus minister instead of you. The guys who don't like Jesus, these are good men and women who love the Bible, and they're looking at this situation and saying, no, 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 it doesn't work this way. Here's why. Because religion never understands mercy. Because religion never believes that God could love us without first us using law observance to earn his favor. And so the religious people were like, no, no, no. God doesn't come in and just fix broken people who haven't even tried to follow the law. You're supposed to pay him back, give an earnest effort with the law observance. He wouldn't just heal us. And what happens is mercy always confuses our religious instincts. We always think it can't be like that, it can't be like that. And what happens is if you have had the experience of someone way off the deep end meet Jesus and find mercy, is you'll find there's this little thing in your heart that says, not them, they haven't even tried. Religion is just another pool. It's always confused by mercy. It's always even frustrated at mercy. Jesus says something. His intention is to work from the inside out. He says something in verse 14 that's frustrating. See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What Jesus is doing is he's actually connecting the dots that actually our bodies are broken because our souls or our hearts are broken. He's not saying there's a one-to-one relationship between a sin and a physical ailment. He's saying what Scripture's actually been saying since Genesis 3, which is when our fundamental life-giving relationship, our relationship with God was broken, chaos broke out in all our other relationships. And Christianity is always taught that we are embodied souls, that what happens in our heart between us and God, the selfishness that invades, the God's suspicion that invades, when that overcomes us, it actually breaks everything else in the world. So the thing that has to be healed for healing to happen in the world is in here and between us and God. Do you want that kind of healing? Do we want that kind of healing? 
What Jesus offers is real hope. The verse just before this, uh, Jesus had performed, healed an official son. And this is what the verse says. This, the, listen to how John always describes the miracles. This is now the second sign. He doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. This is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. All throughout John, they're called signs. And actually in chapter 6, Jesus will feed the 5,000 people. And after feeding him, they'll start following him looking for more bread. And Jesus says, you have seen the sign, but you have not read the sign. Now, why is that language of sign important? It's because Jesus is actually teaching us through the miracles. Signs are things that you educate you and point you beyond themselves. They're small demonstration. The miracles are a foretaste of Jesus' bigger plan. Jesus knew that every person he would heal would actually eventually die. He knew that. There are a bunch of other people at the well he could have healed. But the point was not fixing people that day. The point is that he was demonstrating them to them that he has the power to heal. It was a small physical act to teach a big cosmic truth. And that's why when Jesus later performs miracles like the feeding of the 5,000, he says, you come back to me thinking this is about me providing physical bread, but what I was trying to tell you, these are Jesus' words, is I am the bread of life. Me feeding you was a sermon illustration. That the way your body is satisfied by bread, whoever comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. They saw the sign, but they didn't read it. Jesus' mission was not to heal everyone that say. His mission was to show them that He is the healer. That's why He closes it with, My Father is working until now, and now I am working. He is carrying on the work of making all things new. He's healing this man. It was acted out sermon illustration of the promise of the resurrection. This is a little foretaste of resurrection. This is a droplet of it that he's come to reverse the fall. That's his plan. And what resurrection is, his plan is resurrection to make all things new. And anything less would be a farce. It would be a false cure. It would be an empty hope. It's either resurrection or bust. And what resurrection is, it's this. Christian or not, it is the thing, it's the song you've been humming your entire life. You never know where you got the tune from. Some of y'all heard me talk about this before. There's one spiritual discipline, one Christian spiritual discipline, that everyone in this room is very good at. Now, it doesn't make you feel better. You're like, one spiritual discipline I'm kind of good at, right? Y'all are actually, everyone is good at this. Longing for the resurrection. You know what honking the horn in traffic because someone cuts you off is? That's longing for the resurrection. That's saying the world shouldn't be this way. (laughs) You know what being upset that your roommate left the room mess is? That's saying the world shouldn't have been this way. You know what crying about sick relative is? That's longing for the world not being this way. The spiritual discipline, y'all, everyone here is great at, is longing for someone to make all things new, saying it shouldn't have been this way. This miracle is a demonstration that he has the power to make all things new. Unlike all the other false cures, he has the power to do it. He has done it. God is working And Jesus has taken up that work. And the power 
the power of His healing, of this healing work, these promises that He has died for your sin, that He's made you right with God, that He is risen again from the dead, that one day He will come again and you will join Him at the Lamb's Feast. Sometime this year, we're going to talk about a theology of partying, and it's awesome. The power for those truths and those promises, real ones, this is not sentimentality. The Bible's saying these are historical promises and truths. For it to come into your life is through His words. How does He heal this guy? Through His words. Right? Get up, take your bed, and walk. Three words reverses 38 years of futility and loneliness and brokenness and alienation. All throughout... Words are powerful. Let's not talk about God's words for a second. We'll get there. Let's acknowledge words are powerful. Half of what you do if you ever go see a counselor one day is talk about how your parents' words shaped your reality and your sense of self. We think of words as a puff of air, right? But words pretty much have shaped our complete understanding of reality and ourselves. They're very powerful things. They can destroy things. They can build up things. They're the most powerful things we have. Well, if that's true of human words, what about divine words? Right? We, scripture starts with God speaking creation into being. He heals this man with his words. We're learning something about the power of God's words. Romans 1, Paul says, I'm not afraid of God's good words. Because he says, the good words, the gospel, the good words are God's power for salvation. He actually says those words are the power for salvation. First Peter says, you've been born again, talking to some Christians, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's words dramatically change you. Psalm 107.20, he sent his word and healed them. His words are powerful, his words heal His words have reversed 38 years of brokenness and isolation and immobility. And His words only work because He's the only person that has the power to heal. His words actually do what they say. He says, let there be light, and there is light. He says, get up and walk. And this guy gets up and walk. If you want to encounter His healing power, there in His words. What would it look like for you actually to take these words from Jesus, your Redeemer, And sow them in your heart. These words, your sins are forgiven. Those are Jesus' words. Don't get upset at the fact that we brought up the doctrine of sin. Soak in those words. Your sins are forgiven. Open all the hidden closets of your heart. Let those words go in. Let the light of those words go in there. You're forgiven. Let it go to the places that you thought those words could never get know, that no one would ever know about, that you don't even admit are part of your heart. And those words have power if you take them there because He is the one against which we've been sinning the whole time. But He is the one who's done what's necessary to forgive. He's absorbed the cost. He's paid the price at the cross. The reason we can't forgive ourselves, the reason we're all trying to invoke that language all the time and really, really frustrated by it, is because our sin is ultimately not against ourselves. Our sin is against our Maker. The for- forgiveness can only be given by the one who sinned against. Hear Jesus' words about your sins. Your sins are forgiven. Here are some words. The reason we do confession and assurance 
every week in RUF is the same reason about a month ago, several times throughout a day, I would open the door to my garage and peek in there. Because several weeks ago, I realized one of my life dreams. I sold my truck and I bought a used BMW convertible. It's what I've always wanted. And I wanted to get one before Jesus came back because I didn't know what the deal is for like gas cars when Jesus came back. But that's another question. So I need to get one soon. But Elizabeth can testify, that's all I've wanted as long as you've known me. Finally got one. And you know what I did several times that first week all throughout the day? I would walk past the garage door and I'd stop and I'd turn and I'd just go peek in there and be like, yes. <laughs> I did that for a week for a used BMW. The fact that the God of creation has forgiven us, has conquered death, is not surprised by our old sin or by the sin we commit tomorrow and that he loves you freely by his grace. Confession and assurance is us opening the door at least once a week. We should do it far more and peeking in and being like, really? And he's like, yeah, that's what it is. We're peeking in on the good news over and over again. Good news that should have been bad news. But he made everything right for us. Here are some words. Let's get real for a second for some of the words. Truly, truly, John, Jesus in John 16, I say to you, you will weep and lament and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat. His words don't sugarcoat anything. And in fact, happy Christianity that's like, you should be happy all the time, and if you're not happy all the time, you're probably not doing Christianity very well, is probably not Christianity. Because Jesus says, we'll weep. There's weeping, there is sorrow, there's more sadness ahead, but he's going to turn it to joy. Palliative Christianity hides the sadness, usually tries to use either technique or money to buy it off, and Jesus says, no, 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 you'll be sad, but I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. What if you take those words with you? Jesus says, in the world there's going to be tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome it. He doesn't promise it will be easy, but he promises that you can trust him that He's the resurrection, that He's gone into the grave on our behalf, that He's broken the guilt of sin, He's broken its sentence on us, the condemnation that we stand under is broken, and He's broken the power of sin, which is death, so that those are united, so that if you are united to Him by faith, and you want to be healed, you'll be with Him. I'll close with this. If you're frustrated because Jesus hasn't fixed what you wanted to fix, because He hasn't done what you've wanted Him to do, we need to be challenged that maybe we've been saying all along, Jesus, I'm glad you're here. Can you take me to the pool? And what he's saying to us is, I am what you're looking for. I am where healing takes place. Because healing takes place in our lives when we are nourished and assured of his love. Because what we need is not to win at Stanford. We need our sins to be forgiven. What we need is I will be with you. What we need is there will be tribulation, but take heart because Jesus has overcome it. What we need is behold, I'm making all things new. And if you're struggling, if you're struggling to find Jesus compelling because he's not fixed what you want him to fix, Jesus, I wanted you to fix my family. It's jacked up. Here's what Jesus says. There's going to be trials. I told you there will be tribulation. And I told you there will be sorrow. 
But maybe the way that He intends to begin to heal that thing you want Him to heal, your fa- let's say your family, maybe the way that He's going to heal it is not through magic. It's never really been His mojo. Maybe the way He's going to heal it is that He's going to have you look at the cross and you be humbled by His grace of forgiveness and realize, I can boast no more because the thing I am is one who's received grace and been forgiven by a merciful God. And what happens is, when that starts to dawn on you, is humility breaks out in your heart. And you know what the first key ingredient in healing relationships is? Humility. Maybe that's how He's going to start healing your family. Maybe a way He's going to keep healing your family is you're going to read Romans 8.22. We know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves are groaning. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for we do not see, we wait for it with patience. When those words are sown deep in your heart, and you're like, I'm waiting for the promised resurrection, and I know God keeps His word, you know what happens? Patience starts to happen in you. If humility is the first ingredient for healing broken relationships and broken families, you know what the second one is? It's patience. Maybe it is healing your family. His healing comes by His word, by His work on your behalf, by His transforming grace from the inside out. Let's pray.